Turn to the book of First Peter, the fourth chapter. It's on page 986 in your pew Bible. First Peter 4, verses 12 through 19. Yes, you definitely want to come back tonight uh, when they triple the number of people up here and a great time of worshiping the Lord. We'll all be gathered together. Peter, if you're visiting, we've been preaching through the Bible, doing entire books, just an overview of it. We come to the person who is probably closest to Jesus during his earthly ministry of anybody. And the church is going through suffering, and there's two kinds of suffering that he talks about. Together as God's people, let's read aloud verses 12 through 19 of the fourth chapter. And as you read, listen carefully, you're reading God's word. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is taking place among you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you are sharing Christ's sufferings so that you may also be glad and shout for joy when His glory is revealed. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory, which is the Spirit of God, is resting on you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, a criminal, or even as a mischief maker. Yet if any of you suffers as a Christian, do not consider it a disgrace, But glorify God because you bear this name. The time has come for judgment to begin with the household of God. If it begins with us, what will be the end for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinners? Therefore, let those suffering in accordance with God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while continuing to do good. The sins are reading of God's holy word, to Him be the glory and the honor. Here's uh, some more fun thoughts. Four weeks from now, it will be 2004. Thirteen months from now, it will be 2005. As I say, doesn't time fly when you're behind? Have you noticed that? One of the things that bugs me about life, I don't know about you or not, is that I'm in a hurry... And God is not. Have you noticed that? We want to get all this stuff done. Another thing that bugs us about life is though God gives us good things, have you noticed how little heaven gives you what you really want? Uh, Carolyn and I in a couple of weeks will be celebrating our uh, 25th wedding anniversary together. And to... um... I've been getting a lot of advice from people that have gone on before us and have uh, been married longer. I was told recently of a couple, their birthdays were just a week apart, and they were uh, celebrating their 60th birthday, and they, you know, they decided to have a, a prayer together, and all of a sudden a voice answered, ask what you wish, each of you. And so the wife said, wow, wow. And she looked to heaven and she said, you know, it's been fun being married, but he really hasn't made that much money. And I'd like a first class vacation. And poof, they were at the Ritz Carlton in Hawaii. And they're there. And then the voice came and said, ask again. And the gentleman said, well, you know, it's my turn. And he looked at her and he looked at heaven and he looked at her and he looked at heaven and he said, you know, Lord, it's great here on our 60th birthday, but I've always thought I was entitled to somebody who was 30 years younger than me. And poof, he was 90. 
isn't it true that we say, God, I want certain things and it never comes this way? Well, we actually are going to look at a book this morning that answers the question that most of us ask. And the 50 cent word for it is theodicy, the justice of God. Why doesn't God make life easier? And as Peter writes this letter, and remember Simon, his name was changed to Petra to Peter by Jesus. And when he met the risen Lord, he had no idea what that encounter would lead. The miracles, the glory he would see, the wonder, and how much he would suffer because he met Jesus. And he writes to his the early church. He became one of the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, along with James that we saw last week. And as now as Rome is starting to raise its ugly head against these Christians, and many of them are starting the early part of martyrdom, which Peter himself will later be martyred. And as the Jewish synagogues, which they came out of, said, you're not Jewish, God doesn't love you. What are you doing letting Gentiles in? And they wondered, God, we're losing money, we're suffering. And Peter writes and he says, we sometimes forget who we are. There's a lot of identity theft going on in America where someone takes your all your information of your identity and your credit card numbers and runs up bills on you. Spiritual identity theft is even worse. It's where Satan takes you and convinces you're, you're somebody you're not. And Peter writes to the church saying, all of us in Christ, we are a chosen people. You are chosen by God. You didn't talk him into this. He chose you. And you're chosen not to get a pass around struggle. And not to get an exemption ticket for many hassles in life. But we are chosen for three basic things in this letter he will write. You're first of all chosen for an inheritance. You don't have to buy this. You can't earn it. We are literally going to inherit incomprehensible glory. We are also chosen to rule and reign with Christ. And what prepares us for that is if you're a Christian, you're also chosen to struggle for a temporary time to share in God's glory. And Bel Air, with the mission that we have, what are you free to choose? This. We can choose to either cooperate with the Holy Spirit and yield to this glorious mission, or we can resist it and struggle and complain, but you're never going to stop it. Because God is going to pull this off, and we celebrated Advent, not just a strange time when Jesus came into this world as that child in a manger, but we celebrate that He's coming back as King of kings and Lord of lords, and we have got a fabulous life in front of us that is so tough. Is this great? Amen? Got your Bible? Flip with me over to First Peter, the first chapter, page 983 in your pew Bible, as he writes this letter. Now, we don't know the exact age of when he writes this. Most of the scholars and historians think it's probably around 55 or so. He will be martyred at 62 A.D. under Nero. But as he's writing to them, he addresses this, and he is writing... Well, let's let him speak. Verses 1 to 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia present-day Turkey, Asia Minor, who have been chosen and destined. Now look at this Trinitarian greeting. 
by God the Father, sanctified by the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in abundance. I always find it fascinating. Who could understand the mystery of the Trinity? The word Trinity is never found in the Bible, but it drips. One God, three persons. And here you have Peter. A lot of people like to make Peter the dumb fisherman. He wasn't dumb. He stands in front of the Sanhedrin in the book of Acts, and it says they saw that they were not learned men. Well, that means they weren't dressed nice. They didn't have all the 50-cent words of the Talmud and all the formal training. But he's got an incredible mind. He was probably also upper middle class. He's not a poor fisherman. He owns his own boats, the gospel tells us. Not everybody owned their own boats. And he becomes one of the great leaders in the church, and he's writing to all the church Jews as well as Gentiles scattered throughout the Roman Empire. Then he says in verse 3, Let's read 3 through 9 together out loud. we got to read this because he talks about this living hope we have. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By His great mercy, He has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Even now for a little while you have had to suffer various trials so that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold, that though perishable is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Although you have not seen Him, you love Him. And even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy. For you are receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. He talks about this. You and I aren't called to a hope from some formula. If only I had the right education, if only I had the right code, if only I had some right secret. Our hope is alive. He is a person. And when Jesus Christ blew out of that tomb on Easter morning, He who put on flesh and became that child in the manger, He's alive with a beating heart and someday we're going to hug Him and He'll be in a perfect spiritual body and you will too. You will feel His hands, you will smell His hair, and He will look into your eyes. That is the hope we have. And he is coming back for us. And Peter says, with that is this inheritance. You don't earn an inheritance. An inheritance is just given to you. And God Almighty is protecting this inheritance and protecting you for it. Right now we can get a little bit of an advance withdrawal on it. A little bit, but not the whole thing because the real banquet is coming. Uh, don't you? I just love Thanksgiving. It's one of the few times you're allowed to eat yourself into a coma. And, you know, the fun thing is going into the kitchen ahead of time, which I don't help out in that way at all. But if you get a, a great uh, chef as my wife or his other in there and they're working. I remember even growing up, my mom, and you always tried to steal something, just a little piece of turkey ahead of time. And then a, some wooden spoon would smack you in the back of the hand. Well, God, we are allowed to get just a little whiff and a little taste. But the real banquet is coming. Right now, can you imagine a world 
where everybody are in perfect bodies and death is no more, where there's no separating of racial divisions, where no one is afraid, where people have nothing but love, they want to celebrate you and bless you as the only motive of their heart, where the angels in the glory is waiting and nobody dies. That, we get a little whiff of it right now when we're gathered together. But the real inheritance is being saved for us. And that's why Peter says, quit flipping out. It is, that's a biblical term in here. That, look what he says here, verse 6. In this you rejoice, even if now for a little while you have to suffer very, periosmos is the Greek. Periosmos means a trial that purifies. When gold, in this day of the first century, the metallurgists, when they got silver or gold ore together and they would heat it up, how you got the impurities out of it is you got it so hot that the gold dross alone would come to the top and all the other stuff would drop down. I was reading the way that they could tell not some chemical analysis when it was pure, but when you could look into it and it reflected the light well enough that you could see your face. God will put you and me through trials. Not because He's mad at us. Not because that means we're in danger of losing anything. But the exact opposite. Because it's a guarantee that He's preparing us for that. And the trials we go through, and nobody signs up for this. Didn't it sound like what we read last week with James? Count it all joy, my brethren and cistern. No, he didn't say cistern. When you face various trials, knowing that it produces endurance. Paul said in Romans 5, we rejoice in our sufferings. What are these people, masochists? No, because suffering produces Endurance And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And we have never been disappointed with the hope in which we believe through Jesus Christ. And when you and I, if we're going to follow the Lord in this time, you know what the goal of your life is? It's not to try to keep your clothes clean from getting dirty with other people. You and I are called to get our hands dirty and hang around the foul people of the world. And if you don't have any foul friends, I've got a list for you. The people that really need the Lord out there. We're not called just to keep increasing our pleasures and avoiding struggle. Though God wants us to enjoy. But you and I are called to go into this world because Christ is coming back. This is not a game. And Peter writes and says, this is how you know. And then look over here in verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that was to be yours made careful search and inquiry. Inquiring about the person at time that the Spirit of Christ within them indicated when it testified in advance of the sufferings destined for Christ and his subsequent glory. Now, Peter's got a great mind, but he's got a lot of run-on sentences here. And what he is saying is that the prophets had some idea, but when would the Messiah come? Who would have thought he'd been born in our present calendar of 4 B.C.? And nobody, and I can't wait to hear from David Brickner next week, And talking to our Jewish friends, nobody thought the Messiah could suffer. The Messiah was to be the conquering superhero from heaven. But now as you look back, you see it is so plain that God had always foretold that. Even things, look what he says there at the bottom of this in verse 12, things the angels long to look into. Do you realize the angels in heaven right now, looking down at the sanctuary at Bel Air Press and every church and Christians around the world, on that word longing is they are peering. 
They cannot figure out this incredible thing that God is doing with you and me, made in His very image. And even the angels long to see the power of the Creator Himself, the King of the universe, taking humankind and those that are now brought under the Messiah's blood and transforming us into His image. And that, what that leads us to realize is that there is no time when God can't use us. God is the God of time. You're never too young for God to use. When someone says, well, wait a little bit till you grow up, then God will use you. And you're certainly never too old for God to use. I just read this last week. A sociologist was doing this research about when the greatest achievements were done. How old do you think the average person is when the greatest achievements, according to mankind... His name is Henry Durbanville, and he says the greatest productivity of a man or woman's life is in the decade of their 60s. He found that between the age of 60 and 70, it contained 35% of the world's greatest inventions and achievements. Between the ages of 70 and 80, 23%. And after 80, 6% of the world's greatest insights were discovered. In other words, 64% of the greatest achievements took place with somebody older than 60. That's why you don't find the word retirement in the Bible. You're allowed to retire, sure, maybe from your job, but the idea that you just walk around and cruise and take it easy, no way. Remember Moses, we studied he was 80 years old when God called him to lead his people out. Like I always say, when he came before Moses, his voice wasn't like Charlton Heston. It was more like George Burns. Like, Let my people go, you know. And yet God used him at 80 for the next 40 years. You're never too dumb. You're never too uneducated. You're never too educated or too wealthy. The only thing that stops us is our resisting and saying, Lord, I must control it and have it my way. And Peter says these trials are very much a part of what God is doing and his whole plan in this. And that's why, look over here in the third chapter, or the second chapter. He talks about us being called to this living hope. And this living hope is a living temple that you and I are built into. And then he talks about that we are called to a different kind of a life. Be ye holy, he says in the first chapter, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. You and I are called to holiness. What is holiness? Most people think it means like self-righteousness. You ever met holy people? They tell you they're holy. Have you noticed that? Or you can't relate to them? Holiness doesn't seem to be an attractive attribute. I don't think I went out with one girl because they said, Hey, you got to check this girl out. She is really holy. Yeah, normally that means like some, you know, pious person that smiles to their teeth dry and they got that glazed look and they, they got that Jesus nod going on. Holiness just means God-likeness. It means Christ-likeness. Do you think Jesus was boring? Do you think to be around Him you found inauthenticness? No. We are called to live our lives sexually, monetarily, relationally, dream-wise, in holiness. Saying, Lord, this is what you have called us to. And then he says that going through these, these different ways, we learned how to handle these things. Look at verse 11 of the second chapter. He says, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles. See how what an early letter this is? It's mostly Jewish. He means the Roman world. 
So that though you, they malign you as evildoers, they may see your honorable deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge. Why do they malign them? Well, the word was out that the early Christians were cannibals and homosexuals. Homosexuals because they talked about brothers loving each other and cannibals because they did this evening thing where they drank blood and ate the flesh. They're talking about communion. And they had to do it at night because it was illegal to the Roman Empire. So there was this big spin that Nero will use about the Christians are the lowest of low. And he's going, even when they don't understand you, you bless them. When they run you off the road, you bless them. When they take advantage of you, you bless them. You don't roll over and say it doesn't hurt. When someone slaps you on the right cheek, you willingly give them your left. Jesus said when someone takes your coat, you give them your shirt. If somebody forces you to carry his pack, an occupation troop, one mile, you carry it too. You be as your Father who is in heaven. And these are the trials that he is talking about. And that's why it's so important to handle finances, he'll talk about over here in the 13th verse. About political problems. He's not saying just submit for the sake of because you're a wimp. But even the Roman Empire, he says, you do what is right. In verse 18, he talks about economic oppression in those trials. And Peter was not in favor of slavery any more than Paul was in favor of slavery. And some Presbyterians in the 1830s down south built a theology that slavery was all right. Well, that's craziness. And by the way, everybody has been enslaved at some time. The Roman Empire had millions of slaves. Northern Europeans, the slaves to the Romans, had blonde hair. And what he is saying is not that slavery is good. He's saying no, but you do what you do unto Christ. What do you do when you got an employer that is just the biggest pain in the neck? What do you do when you have a boss that is so mean and whoever she or he is, you cannot get along with them? Peter says, you do your job and you do it under the Lord. And what about when you got an employee? An employee that's just worthless. Somebody told me they were just reviewing one of their staff and he just wrote down, this guy has hit the basement and there are signs of digging. (laughs) That's how low he is getting on this. And what do you do with that? Is that you continue to love and you try to bring out the best in them. And then he talks about the other problems, such as the economic. And that's why, Bel Air, if you can learn to master tithing to the Lord, what we talked about last week, and there's so much of it in the scripture, there's such a freedom about that. Of blessing others rather than just living for yourself. And when you find that, six years ago, you know Forbes magazine puts out the 400 richest people in America? They solved a mystery that had been going on for a decade. Somebody was giving millions and millions of dollars anonymously to universities and to schools and to hospital and to charity work. And all the money always came in a cashier's check with a note that just said enjoy they couldn't figure it out and they finally by following one of the cashier's check which the bank shouldn't have told them but they did they figured out his name was Charles Feeney they were right he was one of the 400 wealthiest but they had only estimated 1% of his wealth Charles Feeney by the way you know all the 
duty-free shops in all the airports, those are his. He has given away, they estimate, $5 billion anonymously. He has never owned a house. He has never owned a car. He wears a Timex watch. He only flies coach. He will not give interviews. And they, when they did ask him and they found out why he did, he said, because it's so much fun. Is that unbelievable? And I want to tell you this. I can guarantee you he has enjoyed that $5 billion more than if he would have lived for himself. God has wired it that way. And that's why when we're always going through all these trials and saying, Oh God, I'll help others as soon as I don't feel any more heat. It's not so. In fact, the way sometimes you help the heat you're going through is by blessing others and loving them. And then he says over here, look in the third chapter. He talks about the suffering sometimes we go through with our families. Are families ever a pain to each other? I don't know. I don't know. You know, husbands and wives sometimes... uh, they uh, are not exactly the most kind to each other. Sometimes we're a pain to each other. I heard the little boy after Sunday school, he was heard about how Eve came about. And he was running afterwards and he got a side ache and his friend said, what's the matter? He said, I don't know, I think I'm having a wife. <laughs> sometimes as parents, sometimes as children, sometimes as spouses, we do the meanest things to each other. And Peter is saying, look at, look at, look at, look at. Some of these trials you go through, you treat them as though you treat Christ. Do you know, I, I am, uh, not to embarrass them, I have uh, all my tax deductions uh, here. My three uh, kids are with us in Carol. You know, that someday that I will take and stand before the Lord, my tax deductions, my children. Uh, it's not somebody going, tax deduction? What they got down there? Uh, that someday, though, I will give an account to the Lord about them. Do you see why I should be nervous? Do you see that? Because... And all of you that live in families, and not just biological families, the people you live with, I won't even give an account just for that, though. I'll give an account for Bel Air. Someday the question will be, did you grow more in the image of Christ while you were under my leadership or less? That's what this is all about. And here's the great news is, he's going to hold you accountable too. Yes! But not in a mean way, not in a how you blew it, but in a sense of, look at the things that I can do for you. Let me love you and use you in that sense. Suffering, why does God allow it? If God were all powerful and all loving, wouldn't he just give us what we want? That's the biggest question of the ages. The quick answer, the Eastern view, Hindu and Buddhism, is that this world is suffering so you withdraw from it. Western secularism is you rant and rave. You don't go quietly into that night. You try to be classy, but then you just die, and that's the end of it anyway. The biblical view is this world was not always this way. That God had made it beautiful and sin entered into this world. And someday there will be no more tears or pain or death that will be righted. But in the meantime, first of all, we have an enemy out there against us. Do you remember on our 9-11 service right here, uh, Aaron, the young Marine, and just came back from Iraq, and he was saying, after I was talking to him, that he said the desert at night is so beautiful, the stars, I can touch them, and sometimes you hear these birds, and then you go to bed, and next thing you know, wham, artillery coming in on you, and he says, and it hits so fast, and the heat and the sound, and you literally wake up seeing if your feet and hands are still on you, and he said, and then you remember who's out there. 
you and I kind of get lulled into this materialism of our culture and that everything is fine. And we forget there's an adversary out there. Peter says he's a lion seeking who he may devour. But he's a lion on a leash. God will only let him go so far. That's some of the pain. Another reason there's pain, just giving ourselves back to God is painful. Our egos and our soul swollen with sin... Just to say, Lord, I don't need to control life in itself is a pain. Just to set a broken bone hurts sometimes, doesn't it? But if you don't set it, you'll never walk. And also there's pain, though, that Peter says, because he's literally using that to carve us in his image. Pain in itself is destructive and useless. No, but the process that God is doing. And then finally over here in the fourth chapter in verse 7. This is one of my favorite verses. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be serious and discipline yourselves for the sake of prayers. Above all, maintain love for one another. Love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Like good stewards of the manifold grace of God, serve one another with whatever gift each of you has received. He's going, the end of all things is at hand. So what should you do? Well, you should pray and have a lot of dinner parties. And you should get involved in ministry. Well, wait, I thought the end of all things is at hand. Exactly. The end of all things is at hand. Stay connected to God. You and I are bonded to Christ this morning, not chemically, but electromagnetically. Chemically would be where we just stick to Jesus. You make a magnet by running voltage through it. You cut the voltage off. Everything falls off. And you and I are connected to each other when we stay connected to the power source. And so you pray is how you stay connected and you have this power in life. And love one another and get involved in caring is why when we have the sign-ups next week, if you're not in either a small group or one of these ministry areas, that's where the Holy Spirit releases power. And that's how this whole city can change. Who would have thought Mary? Would you pick an adolescent Jewish girl like Mary to have the Savior of the world born? Joseph, a carpenter, probably in his early 20s. And what about the shepherds? The very first people that heard about the birth of God, the Son, in human form were not the clergy, were not the scholars, were not the wealthy. It was the shepherds. The shepherds were so down and out, it's like the angels appearing to the night crew at In-N-Out Burger. They're the first people to be told God has come into the world because God loves to use the humble. And even Peter, who rejected Christ, will find out that this is a love that never lets you go. He didn't reject Jesus in the sense of saying, I don't believe in you. Remember in Jesus' hour of need, he got proud and Jesus said, you will all desert me. And Peter said, I will never desert you, even if all these yahoos do. And Jesus said, Peter, tonight you'll deny that you know me. And Peter did, and he wept bitterly. And Jesus went back and got him and used him, and he became Petra the Rock and become the head of the church. And finally, Nero, trying to blame the Christians for the burning of Rome and using them as scapegoats, finally said, if I could get the head of the church and one of the great heads, Paul was with the Gentiles, James had already been martyred, and he brought Peter before him. And we don't know from the Bible, but from outside sources, that Nero said to Peter, 
I will crucify you like your master. And Peter said, I am not worthy to die like that. Crucify me upside down. And that's the way he entered the presence of the Lord. He knew the glory that was waiting. He knew what it was to love each other now. He knew that nothing can stop this. You've got an inheritance coming. You really do. You're going to rule and reign over the angels. And you and I have got a struggle in front of us. Because we're going to, by God's grace, make this city different. Amen? Let's pray, shall we? God, I thank you that you'd have loved us and that you have called us, Lord. We didn't talk you into it. And even when we have sinned and shaken our fist at you and run away a thousand times, you keep calling us back. I thank you, Lord, that you have not left us alone. That the struggles we go through, that your hand is right there, Lord. And that you use them to polish us into your image. And even when we can't understand and we're mad at you and angry, that you understand and you hold us with your big, strong arms. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be able to be purified. And Lord, thy will be done. And to tell others about this Savior. And to love them in the way you have loved us. Lord, one of those ways of loving you is by giving to you these tithes and these offerings. And Lord, as we give these to you, I pray, Lord, you'd bless them. There are families out there that need a cup of coffee and a blanket, that need food. There are those that need to hear about the good news of Christ and those with bills. And Lord, I pray that you would take all these gifts and receive them. Those that can only give a little, Lord, would you encourage them in this time and show us how to help? And those who can give generously, Lord, teach them the wisdom of stewardship. And all glory and honor go to you. Thank you, Christ. Thank you, you're coming back. It's in your name we pray. Amen.